Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Welcome to Crimeland. I'm Julie J, and this week I'm talking to the very funny Bernard Casey about the death of Moss Moore. Bernard, I'm so excited to have you on. Thank you so much for coming on. No bother at all, Julie. Thanks for having me. Oh, listen, I'm delighted to have you now. How could I not have you for this one? Because, of course, this is a very famous one. I don't know if you did the field in school. You must have, surely. I didn't do it in school, but it's a, it's a play and a film that I'm borderline obsessed with. Really? Absolutely. Yeah, I absolutely love it. Now, I know the film itself didn't get great, really, like... It Very disappointing. Acclaimed and it was totally, it was set differently. It was set 30 years earlier and it was set in a different place and the storyline was different. But I just love what it's about, like the whole Irishness of the of the land and the fella coming back from the States who left. What does he think he is coming over here? And the church just not caring. And it's like, we just want to give the money to the Yanks so the place can prosper. It is brilliant. Did you see yourself, did you identify with any of the characters in the field? Thankfully not. <laughs> I was going to say, you're, you're too nice to be a bull McCabe. Maybe so. I might. I think I might have been uh, more of a Flanagan, you know, the fella inside the bar, just going, oh. I know bull, stop it bull. And you, the bull destroying the fucking bar with his... <laughs> yeah. His, his I could see so, you as a bit of a Flanagan, so all right, sure. Yeah, yeah, Flanagan. But one, one character I loved in it was the bird. I, I was just about to say the bird is such an underrated character. He's so great, isn't he? He's brilliant. Like he's, I think the fact that I think every parish has a bird. This fella that just goes around, he has, and I would say maybe the local gossip was kind of inspired a small bit from the bird because everyone thinks he's a bit of an idiot, but he knows. He's everything. a cute whore. A cute whore, but yeah, he knew who killed the donkey, and he knew the tinkers knew too. <laughs> 
The bird is great. Do you know what? Actually, speaking of the field, in a former life, I was a teacher when I started going out with Fred and I brought him to see my school production of the field. And like a lot of schools, there weren't a lot of male staff. So they had uh, they had a woman playing the part of William. And it was very funny because obviously there's the scene where William is killed and all you could hear ricocheting around the school yeah. hall was Fred pissing himself. He just thought this was the funniest thing ever. So then all the kids were looking at Fred and then they all started laughing and everyone was like, no, no, this is a serious moment in the play. He he thought it was gas. He hadn't done the field. He thought this was hilarious. This man being beaten to death. Exactly. Like, and especially in, in a hall full of uh, pre-adolescent teenagers and things like that, like it's always going to be like... Uh, uh, uh. There yeah. was a lot of nervous laughter. But of course, little did I know, I was going out with an adolescent teenager, i.e. Fred Cook. He was the one who found it the most <laughs> gas of all. Yeah. <laughs> Fred didn't get the memo at all. Like He, just, he didn't uh, get the in. memo. So this murder, of course, is kind of known as like the true story behind the field as such. So, of course, the play written by John B. Keane was based loosely, we might add, on this case, which took place in North Kerry. So I don't know if you know much about the death of Moss Moore. Um, I would. I I would have looked into it quite a lot from my time, I suppose, studying acting as well when we were, you know, looking for parts and things like that. So, you know, you're you're looking at the backstory of the field. And I would have loved it. I, 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 in particular, I suppose the how he came to his death in the first place was was very, um, it's very kind of dark. And obviously, any murder is dark, but this was very kind of sinister. Like he was just playing cards, wasn't he? He was. And I just know, Bernard, you're going to be one of these guests that actually knows more about the story than me. I'm sweating. <laughs> up. I'm sweating I'm, already. You, I am you know what? Since, since this is a Zoom, you can put your hand up like, and just say, like, you know, they can't see that I can see you. <laughs> so, like, you put your hand up and just say, okay, you, you stop. I'm, oh. I'm going to say that part. No, no, no. <laughs> okay. This is, and I will mute you at times, Bernard. If the questions are getting a little too pressing, you're going to yeah. get muted. So, just be warned. Bernard, thanks so much for doing it. So, I'm sure you know most of this already, but let me just tell, tell you the story anyway, just for giggles. So, the killing of Massmore um, happened on November 6th or the 6th of November 1958 in Raymore and remains one of the great unsolved Irish murders of the 20th century. So Dan Foley and Massmore were neighbours and friends in Raymore, which is about 15, 14 miles from Nistole, of course, a town we know well, a busy town in North Kerry and home of the flame, famous playwright John B. Keane, who we've already mentioned. So Moore was kind of a slight man. He was small, he was Thin, um, kind of just a small, slight stature. He was 12 years younger than Foley and Moore was a bachelor living alone with just two dogs for company, whereas Dan Foley lived with his wife and her brother. Only a hundred yards separated the houses. As farmers, they obviously worked very close, closely together. They both were relatively small farmers. They lived in this kind of tight-knit community. They worked together cutting turf and saving hay. They met every day, of course, at the local creamery and they played cards together at nighttime. By all accounts, they got on well and locals were called the two men working together during the day. And then Moore, a bachelor, often went home to the Foley's for dinner. So it all started with the boundary fence 
Dan Foley felt his cattle were wandering away from his house towards the bog. So he put down a boundary fence along this kind of sliver of land between his land and Moore's to prevent them from wandering. Moore felt the fence was encroaching on his land, so he moved it. Then Foley moved it back and this kind of to and fro continued until Moore took a court action so the fence would be moved back indefinitely. So I'm sure... Bernard, like we can all understand how this did not go down well with Foley when he heard the courts were involved. Yeah, I, I, I remember looking into the story before and just like back then, getting the law involved in anything to do with rural Ireland is seen as like, oh, that's too far. You yeah, know, you, absolutely. They would, have, they would have seen like, they could have said, it like gentlemen, they could have talked it out or they could have done this, that and the other. But, you know, there's no records, there's no records of conversations or documents or anything to say that none of that actually happened. So uh, Mas Moore had felt like that the only the way he could do it was was by going to the court. And that's such an embarrassing thing for yes. Dan Foley because locally, like, they're going to be meeting now on the ships of the court. It's going to be a big falling out and it's in the paper. You know, there's a lot of... There's a, yeah, and you can see how it wouldn't have gone down well because, I mean, obviously there was probably still, and there might still even be a degree of it to this day, but there was an element of lawlessness that you kind of sorted things out yourself and you didn't really go to the guards and the courts to, to yeah. I suppose, kind of yeah. conclude things. Like it was kind of done on a local level. It probably was a sign as well. I mean, that Moore maybe felt a little bit helpless of course, in the situation. And generally people only went to the courts as a last resort. So this was going on for a while. And obviously it escalated pretty quickly because land was involved. So the fact that he went to the courts probably wouldn't have even gone down well with people generally. But Foley took this, uh, he found this particularly offensive, the fact that the fact that he went, uh, it went to the courts with it. So basically what happened was it kind of became clear, I guess, very early on that Moore was really feeling the effects of the bad blood with Foley. And this is why he ultimately kind of went to the solicitors and got the courts involved. But in a really eerie note of foreshadowing, so this is quite ominous, before their case was heard, so this was obviously the talk of the parish that this case was going ahead between Moore and Foley. but So before this case was heard um, in the Tree courtroom in December, that was the date that it was due to be heard in 1958, Foley had actually said to a neighbour that there would only be one man around for the case. So a lot of people view that as very ominous that he said that. Yeah, that definitely... Doesn't look good. Straight away, didn't it? It was basically it's like like oh, <clears throat> if anything happens, well, you know who to you know who to blame. I mean, you know? this so is kind of yeah. with that yeah, unfortunate that unfortunate kind of throwaway comment that you'd say to a neighbour, you know, trying to stand your ground kind of job, and then something happens. But it's not ideal, really. You say that to someone, and then the other party ends up dead. It's just yeah. it's just it's kind of like me saying. You know, if if I was having an argument with a fella and say, you know, it's like, yeah, uh, I'm going to sort him out, boy. And then the next day you find out that he's murdered. People go, well, it's he said he'd sort him out. So it's, you know, I know. people are going to put a very simple two and two together and, and make up their own conclusion, especially back then when, when you didn't have... Uh, internet or, or video witness or anything like that. No, and there was no law and order SVU back then. 
either. So we really didn't know how court cases worked as such. So no, look, it wasn't great that he said this for sure. But it did. So look, obviously Moore, as we said, was kind of, he was a slight man. He was living on his own bar the two dogs. And he had been saying that Foley, who of course was physically like a lot more um, imposing as, uh, you know, physically speaking. And he was also a former IRA man. He was a, he was a good bit older as well. He was in his 60s and he was known to have a violent temper. And Moore did say that he felt that Foley was stalking him. And actually he went to the guards and he asked the guards to kind of warn him off. And the guards, of course, this is 1958. So no surprises here. They told him that this row with Foley was a civil matter so that they couldn't actually get involved. And he had called the guard to station in the stole on November 4th. So the 4th of November, he called them and he had told Superintendent Pat Cronin that Foley had, quote, been tormenting him and asked Cronin, would he come out to Ray Moore to have a chat with him? Now, the promise was made to do so, but sadly, this never happened. And two days later, some local men from Ray Moore entered the station in the stole and they told Pat that there had been a murder in the parish. So on Thursday, the 6th of November, Moore had disappeared after a night of playing cards. So he was down in the neighbor's house. Judy Collins was the name of the neighbor. They'd been playing cards and another neighbor had walked Moore as far as the crossroads. And from there, Moore walked the rest of the way home alone. It would later materialize that Moore had been murdered that same evening. So there were a number of unusual features about the case. So the first one was that the body was not found for a week uh, after his death, despite having only been concealed within 50 metres of his home and a huge manhunt having been underway in the area where people were searching extensively. And another was that the neighbours who had walked into the guard station and reported to the guards in the stole that Moore was missing, they said straight away that he'd been murdered. So they weren't going in to report a missing man they said that they wanted to report a murder. So this was obviously unusual in that there was no question of him having dis- disappeared at all. Yeah, I think the fact that um, like the neighbours even had, the, it, it, as, they, as we'd say, Don and Kerry, they felt it in their waters. You know? <laughs> they felt it in their waters that something was up. And they Those knew waters that, are powerful. Know, I moved my waters. <laughs> They felt straight away that like, okay, this is, this isn't right. Well, I mean, as well, like this is 1958. He's a small farmer. Like he's not heading off to Terry Molinos. So presumably if you haven't seen someone, it's pretty fishy, especially when obviously he's a farmer. Like there was no question of him chatting to anyone about getting someone in to look after the animals if he was planning to go away. And then obviously the local community would have been aware of all this conflict kind of going on between himself and Foley as well. So they did feel it in the waters for sure. And their waters were spot on. Now, Dan Foley's wife, she made an interesting comment because obviously the guards landed down to Raymore and they were looking for this man. He wasn't in the house. The door of the house had actually been taken off its hinges as well. So they went to the neighbours, being the Foley's, and asked, look, have you seen him? And Dan Foley's wife, she was questioned and she said that she hadn't seen more, but that maybe he'd gone up the country to work. Now, obviously, this didn't sit right with the guards because, as I said, Moore had his animals and he had made no arrangements for feeding. So from the outset, the community pointed the finger at Foley. So much so that before anybody was found, they were graffitied the creamery, announcing a boycott of Dan Foley's milk. So, like, that's pretty extreme. That's as extreme as it gets. If someone is boycotting your milk, you know, the shit has really hit the fan. 
that's it. Like they're leaving your, your, they're purposely leaving your milk go sour. Like, you know, that's. Oh, stop that all. And as well, I don't think he was even, he wasn't even served in the local shop, you know? So no, he couldn't. For his messages. Yes, it was as it went on, the boycott just grew bigger and bigger. So neither himself nor the wife nor her brother could get served in the shop. I mean, they, they were completely excommunicated from, from, from the community. But within even the week, so before even a body had been found, uh, something to the effect of, you know, Dan Foley is a murderer, something to that effect had been graffitied on the creamery. So even before the body was found, the community were boycotting them and the excommunication had started. So a search had ensued. Now, obviously, this was a case which drew huge media attention from the get-go. Load of journalists and photographers landed down to cover the disappearance. Dan Foley was photographed searching for Moss Moore, but even at this early stage, locals were looking at him and nobody else really as being responsible for this. And obviously, as you, as you said, they were not being served in the local shop. And nine days after disappearing, Moore's body was found by Superintendent Pat Cronin under a ledge in a stream overgrown with rushes. So it was kind of a ravine. And the corpse was only found, so it was only 35 yards from Moore's house. And interestingly, because he'd been found in this stream, a lot of people, well, I wouldn't say a lot, but some people thought that this actually pointed to Foley's innocence because this was the same passage of water that was used as Foley's drinking water source. So he only had one source of water for drinking and this was that stream. So a lot of people's attitude was he'd hardly drink from the water if he knew a dead body was there. Exactly. Like any, I don't think any person would do that even in this day and age, you know, like that you're going to play. And he's a farmer as well. He knows the topography. He knows the light of the land. He knows where his source is coming from. And there's no way that someone who murdered someone is like, that, that's literally like just hiding a body in your own attic in the drink, in the, in the water tank that you filled your bath with. You know? I mean, it is, it's pretty, it's pretty gross. I, I like, for me personally, I think that does speak volumes, the fact that it was found there. It does. It, it, it shows a spanner in the works for sure, because, you know, when you're looking at it from the outset, everybody clearly, you know, he definitely did it. But when you look at the real nitty gritty ins and outs of it and the little kind of things, you're like, he probably would have had a case, you know, if there was, if there was like forensic evidence and things that would have backed up a, a court case, there would, he would have had a case, I'd say. For the if, D word? Are you going to say uh, the D word? Defamation? Defamation of character. Oh God. Now that would have been, that would have been a big story if he'd gone down that route. Unless maybe he might have been hidden in the, like on the ditch or the dike beside it and throughout the week heavy weather it might have slid down. That's another possible possibility. And, and actually, one thing one thing people did suggest at the time as well, some people said, well, maybe the body had been moved because the area had supposedly been searched at that point and the corpse, you know, obviously had been hidden for some days. But um, that theory was kind of knocked on the head because then the, the coroner at the time examined the body and said that based on rigor mortis, that the, the body had been stuffed into that gully before the rigor mortis set in. So they kind of said, no, it, it wouldn't be the case that the body was moved. And again, people were asking how had the guards just happened upon the cap. Some people were saying, because the cap was what, they happened upon a cap, which was Moss Moore's cap. And they said that that's what alerted them to the fact that this body was kind of in the rushes. So just to the side of the street, 
extreme. Again, people were saying, well, you know, how handy that they happened upon the cap. But at the same time, the area, I suppose it had been searched, but maybe over the course of the week, this is winter time with, you know, bad weather, et cetera, that the cap had you know, not been spotted by people who were searching in the area. It might it might be something that people could miss. But either way, the coroner said, no, look, based on their examination, they didn't feel that the body had been moved. So the post-mortem revealed that Moore had been strangled to death. Obviously, this was a case which took place like before the advent of DNA. But one factor that really complicated the case itself was the failure of local guards to seal off the area for examination. On top of this, a wake was actually held in in Moore's home, which only further hindered the ability of authorities to gather evidence to help them find the killer. So if you have a wake and people are traipsing in and out of the house, again, it's just not ideal when you're trying to find a murder. Exactly. It's literally, this day and age, it's literally like having uh, the, 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 home, uh, the house wake the day after a murder in a house. You know, you're just trampling all over any possible signs of break-in, any evidence whatsoever. Literally, the locals just destroyed everything inadvertently, you know. Headstuff have launched their own subscription service, which means that you can contribute to the production of the podcast and in exchange you can avail of some really lovely bonus content. So, for example, if you'd like to throw a couple of dollar dollar to Crimeland, you can enjoy an extra episode every month. As part of the Headstuff podcast network, we're going to be giving shout outs to various podcasts every week. This week is one I really, really love. I just adore this podcast. You need to check it out. That's banging with Chris and Marcus. Hello, my friends, and welcome to That's Banging with me, Marcus Olera. And me, Chris Mellon. A new podcast celebrating everything good from farm to plate, ship to service, and field and fork. A celebration of everything tasty, fresh, and excellent that's coming off our island at the moment. As well as interviews with people who are shaping the best of the best of food and drink from around the country. Will be available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. So most people were pointing to Foley. However, the Foley's were firm that Dan had no part to play in this. That said, Foley, now this is again what we call, I think the legal term is not ideal. So this is going to be a phrase we repeat throughout this this story. So that said, Foley had scratch marks on his face, which he claimed he got from the horns of a bull. But he also had, and I this I I'm gonna um I'm gonna insert a little bit at the start of this burner, but I did say in my little insert that there's a really good RT documentary on this and they interview um, some people around at the time. It's a, it's a documentary from the 90s, I think. And one guy did say that he met Foley and he was on his pony and trap and then he had a busted lip. This was a couple of days after Moore had gone missing. And he says that he'd gotten it from the butt of a cow. Um, so again, you know, a lot of people were pointing to that as maybe evidence of some kind of struggle. He refused to go to the Garda Barracks, Dan Foley, for questioning, but he did cycle in a few days later into the stove for interrogation. The guards later came to him again asking him to attend the barracks, but he insisted on going to the station on a pony and trap. So he was kind of known as being a very proud, I guess you could kind of say a little bit stubborn man. And he insisted, he was like, I will go down, but I'm going down on my own accord and I'm going yeah. down on my own pony and trap. I won't be told what to do. I'll do yeah, we all know, we all know 
one of those for sure. Yeah. So he was like, no, I, I'll go down, but I'm making my own way down. Thank you. When confronted by the accusation that many believed he was a murderer, Dan Foley always repeated the same ma- mantra. So this is according to Pat Cronin in this RT documentary. He said, they may go to co- into court and swear their perjury, was the line he used to repeat, which I actually think, to be fair to him, is a great line. It's a powerful, it's... Like a real quotable line, you know, probably Isn't if it, it happened this day and age, it would be in the back page of the examiner kind of job with a picture of him coming out. Oh, for sure. Know. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the kind of line that Richard Harris only dreamed of when he was playing Bull McCabe. Yeah. Uh, type of style, you know, <laughs> just that one quick word. I'm out of here. To make so, up your own mind. It's a mic dropper. It's definitely a mic dropper for sure. Yeah, yeah. So this Thank is... Thank you, <laughs> So this is what he kept repeating. And of course, the guards had no evidence to pin the murder on him. And ultimately, they couldn't hold him. So anytime he was brought in for questioning, he was released again. A file, of course, was prepared for the DPP, the Director of Public Prosecutions. But they decided that it wasn't strong enough to bring a conviction. However, as we've already said, locals imposed their own punishment. So the milk was boycotted. Um, Himself and his wife and even his wife's brother became in increasingly ostracised, so much so that they were effectively excommunicated. He couldn't use the local shop, he couldn't buy fodder, he couldn't sell his cattle. And four years after Moore's murder, Dan Foley dropped dead on the bog, having suffered a massive heart attack. His wife died 15 years later. Upon the instruction of Foley's nephew, John, Dan was buried in Tree rather than Ray Moore, where all his ancestors had been buried. So I think part of the reason for that was obviously this case had become so notorious that, well, A, I mean, the, the community had turned their backs completely on Dan Foley, but also the, I suppose that the case itself was, had, had gained such notoriety that he feared that the grave would almost become a bit of a tourist attraction for all the wrong reasons. So they actually buried him inside in Tralee, um, yeah. which of course was breaking with family tradition completely. Uh, I think this uh, another kind of theory said that uh, you know labor on the farm back then was was massive. Uh, there was no machinery of any kind, and Dan Foley couldn't get any farm laborers. No one would work for him; they wouldn't help oh, him. Oh so yeah, that's to, true. Plow his own fields. He had to wire his own ditches. He had to scatter his own animals, and cut his own turf, bring turn it, bring it home. So Dan Foley literally has spent four years doing the work of a slave on his own. Yeah. And, uh, that on top of the stress of, of, of being excommunicated from the, the community and the weight of, of, the, of the, the, the murder and everything, I'd say it just finished him. Well, uh, totally. And actually, John Foley, who's um, Dan Foley's nephew, he has said that that whoever was responsible for the killing of Moss Moore effectively killed two people because ultimately he did have to do all this. He was a man in his 60s, had to do all this physical labor on his own. And as you say, between that and the stress, I mean, the case did kill him in the end, for sure. Yeah, for sure. It's... uh, um and I suppose it's a type of thing that probably still happens in Ireland in other ways, do you know? Maybe not a murder, but maybe a, f- a feud or a falling out of some form. And uh, people feel the stress of the, the kind of the society being on top of them. And, and oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Help, so. absolutely. But def- sure. It's a good quote from John Foley, though, to say that, like, whoever, like, he's, he's a, a staunch believer that, that um, Dan Foley didn't, do, didn't commit the murder. 
And uh, he just said that I think it was a great quote. And he said, whoever did this is responsible for two murders. Yeah, and it is, it's like, and I, I get totally where he's coming from, especially as the nephew. Obviously, he feels very strongly about this. And he actually brought a court injunction. I don't know if you remember that. Um, so John Foley brought a court injunction, which failed trying to, so the field, of course, which was the 1965 play written by John B. Keane, um, based mm-hmm. on this case, was then made into a film. And it was made into a film back in 1990, I think. And he tried to bring a court injunction, which failed um, trying to stop this from being screened. And of course, that that didn't succeed. But he does maintain that his uncle was innocent of the murder. And he talks about the fact that, for example, and I already mentioned this, the locks, so the hinges, the door had been broken off its hinges, the door into Moss Moore's home. And he also points to the fact that Moss Moore had won money in the cards that night and his body, when they happened upon the body, there was no money in the pockets. There was no money on his person. There was no money found in the house. So he maintains that this was probably a robbery that went awry. Now, I guess people would counter that by saying that Moss Moore himself was a very small farmer and he was a man of modest means. So it would probably be unusual that he would be a target for such a crime. Um, as well as that, it has been, it had been wi- widely reported that Moore had felt that for the weeks leading up to his death, he had told people that he felt like he'd been watched and complained as much to friends, you know, at the time that he felt like somebody was watching him. And John Foley maintains, as I said, that it was probably a robbery gone wrong. And it is worth mentioning as well that in the 12 years previous to Moss Moore's death, there had only been 54 murders in the state, of which only two were not solved. So it was highly unusual for a murder to go unsolved in those days. And though murder was not a commonality back in the, in, uh, uh, during that time, in a strange coincidence, there actually had been a previous murder over land. So very similar circumstances, only about a mile away from Raymore. And it was none other than Moss Moore's brother who had found the body. So that happened a few years previous. Wow, I never knew that. Isn't that really, it's not a really strange coincidence. It's a strange coincidence, like... Very uh, odd. Yeah, like, very, very odd. My father, when I'm talking to him about uh, the field, he just goes, because he, he was, you know, how old? He was nine when it happened. And now we're from South Kerry, so we would have been a good hour and an hour and a quarter, an hour and 20 minutes away. Where was your dad, it? actually, at the time of the murder? What's that? Where was your dad the time he of the was, murder? I, think, I need I, an alibi for in, him. He was in sec- I think he was in second class making his holy <laughs> communion. <laughs> your dad knows too much. He knows too much. But he was saying, my dad was saying that it was such a massive case at the time because you'd never heard the word murder in Kerry. Like they never knew what it was. It was the only murder they'd ever heard of at, at, at the time. They said, not, not alone because he was only nine years old, but the fact that all, the, like they ran a shop locally and that all the people coming in were going, oh my God, there was a murder above and truly the world has gone mad. The world is, we're all going to hell. And, do you know, you'd hear, and they said the only time you'd ever hear of a, of a murder was above in Belfast. Do you know? And there was a murder above in Belfast last week. Oh my God, there nearly be a said above in the local church. And like that happened 500 miles away. Like, but that is gas. It the whole country. Like, I know it did rock the whole country. And I suppose it's that thing of if it could happen in a place like Raymore, it could happen anywhere. 
That's it. Yeah, you know, like Raymore is is extremely uh, um, extremely rural area. Like it's a good bit away from any main town. It's, yeah, you know, it's a good. I know it's close, close between Tralee Stone kind of job. I thought I thought it was up by Tralee Tralee Mountain up by the hill, but it seems to be further uh, closer to Listowel than, than than I initially thought. I wish to look up Google Maps again, but. Um, it's, no, but it, it is, is. It's it's one of those, and even in an area like that, even if a murder happened now, it would be shocking. And I think, I suppose, would. if you factor in, uh, there was a general feeling that it would have to have been a local person. It was somebody within the community. So, I mean, I guess something like that, I don't know, does a community ever really recover from it? You know, a community has a certain collective memory and yeah. it really did, it really did shape people at the time, but you can understand why. And as we said, to wrap it up, obviously still unsolved, the murder itself did inspire John B. Keane's classic, The Field, first stage at the Olympia in November 1965, and later, as we said, made into a movie directed by Jim Sheridan and starring Richard Harris as the bull, who, of course, is a character quite clearly based on the primary suspect in the crime, Dan Foley. And that is the story of the death of Moss Moore. And there we have it. And we, I, I'm also, just one thing, Julie, is that uh, recently in an RT documentary called The, the Real Field, uh, John B. Keane's son, Billy Keane, who is the... Oh, good old Billy! Billy Do you know Keane, what? I was, trying, I was trying to get and through this podcast without mentioning Billy Keane. You were trying to, without mentioning it. Because Billy is everywhere. Billy is just all over this all story. Over he's on the Today Show. He's everywhere. <laughs> he's on the paper. But he Love had Billy. mentioned, he had mentioned to, um, to he had mentioned to uh, John Foley, who's Dan Foley's nephew. They had a uh, kind of a meeting that was, you know, recorded for the TV show and everything. And he's saying that, um, he, he apologised profusely on behalf of the Keane family he did. For, for the, the trouble that um, that the, the pain he may have inadvertently brought on because like John B apparently took a lot of that on you know he didn't he did. I don't think he knew what, what, what pain he was causing the family and I don't think it was purposeful or anything but he, he definitely felt um, felt guilty for, for, for the, the pain he kind of put on the Foley family but I don't think that was his intent because the characters it, like it wasn't Totally it was loosely, it was no, influenced. it was loosely based. It was very loose. Like. It, it was I, very would say, loose. I would say more inspired, nearly, than based. It was probably more inspired Literally, by the crime. It was just, uh, like, if you look at the field as a as an actual play and a film, and the, this this case, there's actually very little, there's no comparison because it was the murder and the thing was about a yank coming or a fella coming from home to, t- to buy his land, to take his land. And this was a different, the, the real case of Moscow was... Was was a totally different storyline, really. Just it just had yeah. the, I suppose the core bloody the core set between the two things was was just land. That's the focus of, of and of probably of I mean probably but yes I mean the Bull McCabe was maybe inspired by Dan Foley, but I think we've all I mean every community has a Bull McCabe. I mean yeah. especially in that to this day. yeah yeah one hundred percent. Even in the city, you know, it's, a city's a different. Uh, it's a different setting. It's a different culture and everything. There's still... Types oh, of yeah. They're, there. ju- they're my, everywhere. See that over there? That's my land. <laughs> that's my gaff. Um, that's no, I mean, this is... Not, that's not going to happen. 
<laughs> no, this is it. I mean, I do think Bull McCabe, I mean, yeah, inspired by Dan Foley, but like Billy Keane, there are Bull McCabe's everywhere, to be fair. And actually, John B., he was very much a man of conscience, wasn't he? So even the fact that in the play, William is English, and he was very concerned with kind of the Anglophobia that was very prevalent at the time. So that's why in the film, of course, he's uh, American, isn't he? Yeah. They changed, they switched it up. So he's they not did. somebody, I don't think he set out to hurt people as such. And I know John Foley was kind of filled, he was a bit trepidatious about sitting down with Billy Keane. But the, it, it was very much a human conversation, wasn't it, in the end? It was, it was, in fairness. And you know, both men, both men should take great credit for the way they dealt with it and the way they oh, spoke. Oh, it was great. You know, they, they, they really... Like John Foley didn't have to do that interview, and and it took a lot of uh, for Billy Keane to speak the way he did. And uh, both men should be very proud of the way they they dealt with the situation. You know. Yeah, it was. It's actually really. It's it's. It was really lovely the way it was done for sure. It was. It was very nice. Actually, it was one of the like. If anyone hasn't seen it, they really should look at it. You know. It is. Yeah, it's going to be one of the sources now. I think it's. I think it's still on the player. I think I. I'm going to double check that before I throw it up. Bernard, thank you so much for taking the time out of your high-flying schedule to talk about the field. You're very kind. No problem at all, Julie. Thank you very much for having me on the podcast. Thanks so much. And if we're looking for you, I mean, you are a social media phenomenon, but like just if you're looking for Bernard. If you're looking for me, uh, my Facebook page, Bernard Casey Comedy, Instagram at Bernard Casey Comedy and Twitter, which I'm not as big on because I'm not that good with words. It would be Bernard Casey 19. Or just this, Google Bernard Casey if you come up. Bernard, you're great with words. Come on now. Please <laughs> stop the fishing. As okay. I said, Twitter, Twitter is the smoking room of, of social media. That's where all the cool guys go. Oh, that is, do you know what? Yeah. That is a great analogy. I have to say, I'm not allowed in the smoking room either, just to say that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, there's uh, where it's those those in the smoking room define who make it in the smoking room. I think <laughs> one of these days we'll get in there, Bernard. Bernard, we'll thanks try. so much. We'll Chloe at the door. Yay. Take I'm, care. I'm over it. Thank you. I have marble <laughs> lights. Thanks so much, Bernard. Thanks a million. Bye, thanks, Julie. All best. Bye, bye, bye. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.